This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome, everybody, to Leadership in Action. That is us, Sirius XM's business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Husim, director of the Center for Leadership and Change here at the school. Uh, my friends, uh, co-hosts Anne Greenhall and Jeff Klein are off for the evening. And just to come right into our uh, program with uh, a really, really interesting guest, if you've ever hosted a party, the chances are good that you used Evite to send out invitations. And our guest this hour is Victor Cho, the CEO of Evite, which is one of the world's great online and text invitation services. And uh, Victor, great to have you here in the studio. And I just want to say at the outset, I'm a frequent customer. Okay. Oh, excellent. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. And good. I want that hard feedback. Okay, good. Well, it'll be very good feedback. Of, of, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I just literally about 24 hours ago responded to an Evite. Um, and we're going to be talking with you about how you've built the company. You've been chief executive since, I think, 2014. Uh, you have a history of working in this terrain. I believe you worked for Microsoft for at least five or six years along the way into it. And then you ran a website that uh, I was, again, a customer there, Ophoto, mm-hmm. which was uh, for posting photos. It became, I think, Kodak Gallery. That's right. Um, so you've... Uh, <laughs> You've seen different enterprises in their infancy, in their growth, and in their maturity. And that's going to be our topic. I'm going to ask you just a number of questions about how the heck you make things work from that corner office. So so there we are, Victor. Great, sure. great to have to you here. here. Great to have you in the show. Uh, let's actually take it a little bit chronologically. Uh, you came out of our school here with a, a MBA degree, I believe. That's right. And, oh, no, no, not an MBA. Sorry, uh, just undergraduate. Undergraduate. I should have uh, had that straight. And then I think your early years were with uh, Microsoft back in the Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates era. So talk a little bit about uh, Microsoft, uh, what you learned about how you can motivate, align, energize, and focus a lot of software people and probably well beyond that particular function when you were there at Microsoft. Sure. So, yeah, uh, that was my first job out of school. Uh, I had actually started here at Penn in computer science, and I switched into the business school a little bit later on. But I had this great <laughs> duality of skills of CS and business. So I actually love what Wharton is doing in terms of bringing kind of hard, h- higher level quant and yep. kind of decision science into the curriculum. But Microsoft at the time, it was going through its, I mean, it was the, the Google of the day. It was by far and away the dominant technology company. Uh, it was going through its crazy 10x, 20xing. And... <laughs> Yeah, what were key learnings that I had there? I, I of course, joined it at at a very entry level, and I uh, progressed fairly rapidly in terms of uh, promotion and scale. Um, But I was really part of just this huge machine, right? I mean, we were bringing computing at that point in time into the mainstream for the first time. It it sounds kind of silly and crazy now, but we were super excited then of like, oh, the computer can can make sound now. (laughs) And and there's this thing called a CD-ROM that could actually show video. I mean, like, that was so exciting. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that company was motivated at the time just by the, the ambient energy of kind of changing the world with technology. Yeah. Um, it really carried the whole culture forward uh, from that perspective. Exciting. Let, let's dwell on that for a few minutes. 
I think this is true, but correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, in working then in that era at Microsoft and where you work now, and so many of your friends and professional colleagues working in similar enterprises, some mature, some in the startup phase, but all, in a sense, at the frontier. Yeah. So there wasn't anything out there kind of like Evite until Evite and a few other competitors came along. Or think uh, ride-sharing before uh, Uber pops mm-hmm. up. Uh, and for anybody, Travis Kalanick, who built, who helped co-build um, Uber in particular, uh, I've never met him, but just th- hearing him talk about it, he felt like he was at a frontier. I bet you felt that way at Microsoft. Well, you've said it. It was like a frontier. No, absolutely. I mean, Bill Gates sent out, there was a very famous memo that he sent in 1995, I want to say, which was kind of considered, it was called the Internet Memo. And it was a it was an important strategic piece that said this fundamentally changes yeah. everything in software, and our dominant position is at risk unless we really get ahead of this train. So it was incredibly exciting. It's one tactical example, I was in the marketing organization at the time for the consumer products, so things that's uh, yeah. selling software to the consumer space. And you had your traditional marketer, your direct response person who sent out a gazillion you know direct marketing pieces, and your traditional PR person. Uh, and literally, we crafted a new role for me, which was the online marketing manager for that division. <laughs> Didn't exist before, so yeah, it was, it was clearly at the frontier. I got to work with early, you know, early providers of search. Just literally, as the industry formed yeah. around us, uh, and yeah, we had to figure stuff out. It's like, what does that even mean to be the online marketing manager? <laughs> so I got <laughs> I to define it, out, which right. was nice. <laughs> they they had to ask you what you're going to do. <laughs> totally. I've often heard that people going into Google have even now somewhat the same ambiguity as to what they're supposed to do. They, they often don't even have a title. They arrive, and Google says, figure out what you're going to do here. It's up to you <laughs> to give us a title and, and work out your job description. That said, let's go back. Uh, listeners will remember this uh, this famous uh, moment when, I don't know if I can put it this strongly, when Bill came down from the mount, uh-huh. uh, appreciating that Microsoft had been a little bit slow in the uptake when it came to appreciation, appreciating the Internet. And I think that came out of one of his retreats where he would used to go and l- live in a cabin with no nothing and read for a couple of days. Uh, can you help us? Um, I, I, get, I appreciate this. Some of this happened before you got there. But uh, as Bill and then Steve Ballmer, who later became chief executive, began to push Microsoft, a huge machine already, into the Internet age, uh, if you were in his shoes, how would you take people who had come into that enterprise with uh, desktops and that as uh, and Windows as sort of the dominant uh, paradigm? How would you get people to rethink uh, what the company was doing and reorient towards the internet and making that the, the fulcrum of everything? How would you push the change? I guess is the question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what he did was exactly the right thing, which is you know, I have a philosophy that you. <laughs> To, to drive any business forward, you need the kind of the guiding light principle or the, the North Star of like, where does, yeah. where does this thing have to go? And at the time, uh, Microsoft had a clear North Star. It was articulated as putting a, uh, I might get these words slightly wrong, but basically putting a computer on every home and in every workplace, yeah. right? But that, that was very uh, physical device centric. Yeah. Uh, when the internet came along, you know, Bill effectively shifted that somewhat and said like, yeah, yeah we're going to do that, but we're going to do that in a way that is... Right, connected across all these different business lines. And he actually, at the time, gave very tactical direction to the businesses to say, you guys need to go figure this out. You know, hey, Windows, which was you know, the monster profit engine of the company, yeah. like you're, today you're still a shrink-wrapped product that is being delivered in channels and stores. Like That's going to change. It might not change tomorrow, but 
like with the internet, you can be streamed, right? So everything that you see now in terms of how Windows is updated and structured, that all spawned off way back in 1995 yeah. when he kicked that yeah. off. And it's hard to move a battleship, but he, he like all the, all the pieces started to move. He, he did it. Yeah. Uh, Victor, uh, our topic is leadership in action, and we have found that our listeners often want to hear a personal story, kind of a personal – they want to hear about your experience at Microsoft in more personal terms. So my question to get us onto that is as you finished up – I think it was seven years yeah. at Microsoft – as you finished up your seventh year, uh, walks through a couple things that you knew then that you didn't know when you started – for developing, managing, and leading people in the industry? That's a great question. Uh, the, I always have a kind of a key learning, one key learning that I try to um, tack on to every company that I work for. And the one that I tack on to Microsoft is the power of ecosystem in driving business. Huh. That's, that's what my takeaway was. And of course, I, lear I learned a ton and, and built up a ton of skills. But the, the, the first and foremost, what, yeah, Microsoft was genius at figuring out how do you build not just a product offering, but how do you build a cohesive ecosystem that creates leverage? Help us understand what an ecosystem means on the ground. Uh, it, it's it's thinking more plat at a high level. I'd say it's thinking more platform versus product. Yeah. Right. So it's thinking of um, Office as one example. Right. You know, you could think of the you know the Office suite of products as yeah, this is just a, a piece of software that I'm going to deliver to you and let you do a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. But that's not how they would think about it. It was. How do we think of Office as a platform, right? How do we actually open up the software so that you can have, you know, full networks of third-party developers building on top yeah. of it? So, you know, over the last 20 years or so, I've gravitated towards what I call these networked business models. And I think the seed of that really did come from seeing the power of networked thinking around a business yep. model back at Microsoft. Uh Victor, I'm going to take a quick break and just remind everybody that uh, we are talking with you, Victor Cho, a CEO of Evite. I'm Mike Hussein, and this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So, Victor, back to this the experience. Second related question. As you began to work uh, initially, uh, probably as an individual, but then later teams and maybe even well beyond that when you were at Microsoft, as you wanted to get people lined up working for you around the concept of the ecosystem or the network, uh, more of a platform, how did you go about – this is just a straight-up leadership question – how did you go about moving people who thought of the world differently uh, into the world that you think was going to define the future, uh, platform, network, and ecosystem? Yeah, I would say I, pro I probably didn't do a ton of that at Microsoft because it, we, we were just part of this kind of large collective. I'd say I did uh, – maybe I'll take Evite as an example because uh, that's a great example. Yeah, let's where, go there. And when I joined four years ago, <laughs> you know, the, the business was thought very much of as an invitation service. So for, hopefully everyone's <laughs> gotten an Evite that's listening. If not, I can send you one and, and, and make you feel welcomed. Yeah. But uh, yeah, from a consumer perspective, it's thought it has historically been thought of as as, a, as an invitation tool. I'm going to use Evite to send you a party and just get your RSVP mm -hmm. information, and that's how it got all its early scale. Yeah. Uh, one of the very first things I did as CEO when I came came on board was to set a broader vision of what this business can be, which is absolutely the seed of a plat kind of an end-to-end -end platform goes, around events. Goes back to the ecosystem. No, exactly. Yeah. And so how do we start opening up the experience, which we have done now over the last four years, to not just be a singular tool, but to really start connecting um, people with other business functions that we might not even provide. Let me put a sharp edge on that as follows. Uh, computer science major here, business major here at the University mm -hmm. of Pennsylvania. 
uh, lots of very technical, lots of very functional skills. What I'm hearing you saying, though, is good thing you worked for a couple of years at Microsoft because that was sort of your post-baccalaureate uh, additional education, learning the power of systems. And part of that was, hey, it's not in our curriculum at that time, uh, but part, or you're, you're saying that you're a computer science major as such, but part of that was just the emerging world that you were part of making and were writing on the wave thereof. So mm-hmm. your your ecosystem, anyway, I guess without dwelling further on that, uh, good thing you worked at Microsoft for a couple of years because that's influenced significantly what you do now at Evite. I hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, let, let's take a one more intermediate step before we come back to Evite. Uh, you spent some time at Intuit as well, uh, Ophoto. So thinking tangibly about the learnings from there that influence what you do now? What would you pick out from, let's make it Ophoto and then Intuit? Sure, that one's easy. So uh, when I took over Ophoto, this was in 2004, I want to say. It was, I call it my double double masochistic executive stint, but it was actually very much by design. So Kodak, Kodak, the the parent company, this was pre-bankruptcy. It was going through a clear turnaround, probably one of the hardest turnarounds of any company in the you know, historic arc of business. And within that, it had bought this photo business, mm-hmm. which was still very large scale, but also was in need of turnaround. And I had not done a turnaround in my, um, in my history. I've worked at hyper-growth companies like Microsoft. I'd worked at steady growth companies. And I, I just have a personal philosophy that to be an effective CEO, you need to viscerally understand what happens to a business at different stages. And so it was clear to me I kind of need to know what happens in a turnaround because at some point I'm either going to be managing a business that's in turnaround or I'll have a division in turnaround. Uh, Let's let's just pause on that for a minute. Uh, You didn't know it. I bet you didn't have a single course on it when you were here. (laughs) No, there's no no course. Exactly. There aren't a whole lot of books. Now there are some, but maybe not at the time. So how did you master the art of turnaround? Uh, I want to say that I mastered it, but going back to your first question, I I got a key learning out of it, uh, which I'd love to share, which is I think (laughs) – yeah, it's really, I take the Kodak example as one. So the executives that were running Kodak at the time, and they, a lot of fingers get pointed at them for like, you guys didn't turn the ship around. Um, these guys built the HP printer business, which hmm. in the history of business might be one of the top 10 or top 20 profitable businesses totally, ever made. Totally. Right? So these were not folks that were missing strategic acumen. They weren't missing skill sets. They, they were just faced with a really hard problem. And what struck me about their approach is they underestimated how hard it is to build new channels of revenue. I think part of that came from the fact that they came from a world of ecosystem, right? Yeah. At HP, you've got a multi-billion dollar business. You spawn off new lines. Like Revenue gets generated fairly quickly. And so the the amount of cost that was ge- uh, that was spent to invest in these new business lines didn't get it out of the inflection in time. Uh, Let's just stall on that one for a second. I, I, I'm putting my framework on it. Uh, when the world is changing, we do tend to underestimate how fast it's changing and how yeah. profoundly it is. And the implication of that lack of understanding is we tend to go slow, we tend to go modestly. And your statement is get in both feet and make it happen quickly. Yeah, get in and and don't overestimate how fast you're going to do things like generate revenue health again, specifically in a turnaround. Like take a very conservative view. This was my core learning. Take a very conservative view. Align your cost structure to the much more conservative view. Hopefully you're wrong. Like hopefully you knock it out of the park on turning the revenue curve around. But what you want to avoid, which is what happened at Kodak, is a world where you're not cutting your costs fast enough. 
and your revenue then doesn't yeah. show up, and then you're in a constant spin cycle of downsizing, which basically is what happened there. So here's one uh, point I want to just pick out and just reference, see if this sounds right. Uh, part of of what you've had to do, let, let's keep you at Ophoto for a few more yeah. minutes, is to learn to work with your constituents, your investors, or in this case, the parent, and to help them understand that you're going <laughs> to redirect this enterprise but we're not going to do all that well for a couple quarters or maybe 12 quarters. So you have to tell the strategy story, the vision of where you're going, and the timeline behind it in a compelling fashion. So assuming that that was part of what you had to do, how, how did you make the case? Come on, guys. I'm going to work I'm going to work on this, but uh, for two years, we're not going to see a whole lot of um, black line revenue. What, what do you think? Uh, do you mean uh, at one of my later gigs? or No, let's, let's stay there. How, how did you... What goes into making the case, as you just made it to oh, me, right. yeah. uh, to people, uh, your boss and your and yeah. Kodak and, and well beyond? Yeah, so I have a term that I use, which is, <laughs> and I use this with my teams a lot, which is you really have to understand the nature of the beast that you're fighting. So I think my answer to that would be, yeah. one, you need to really understand it. A lot of times people will jump into a problem with a cursory level of understanding and they'll take action too fast. So really get deep and understand like what are the market dynamics, what are the competitive dynamics. And then I think once you do that, you paint a very conservative, a moderate and aggressive mm -hmm. estimate of where you think the business can go. But build your cost structure, especially when you're a turnaround, around that very yeah. conservative case. Yeah. Victor, here's a question I'm often asked. Uh, again, a couple words in what you've just said. You really have to think as you rise in responsibility – strategically. Where's mm -hmm. the market going? Who's out there? What about pricing? Customers even want what you're selling? All that. My tangible question here is, how did you make yourself more strategic in understanding? How, how did you go about just literally physically getting a, getting your hands around where, where the market's going and all the above? How, how did you do it? How do you develop strategic thinking? It's a question I constantly grapple with because I see some incredibly intelligent execs come through, but they are, in my mind, missing the strategic thinking gene. Yeah. So I have I have two potentials. I can't I can't definitively pin them to root cause and say this is what 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 builds it, uh, or maybe three. So one is uh, which I don't think is the case is that it's just purely innate and that you have some people that are more systemic thinkers at birth. But I, I'm sure that is the case for some people. Yeah. I do think it is trainable because I have seen people get better. Uh, the second one, which actually comes very much back to Wharton uh, and why I've been spending some time here over the last week, uh, it's really getting deep and understanding data and statistics and analytics. So I actually I did a very unique undergraduate curriculum at Wharton when I was here. I started in finance, but I very quickly realized, wow, this finance is just the one application of statistics. And so I went back to the school and said, hey, I'm kind of not that jazzed about finance, but I would really love to get my <laughs> concentration in statistics. They said, that doesn't exist, but we'll accommodate They were awesome. They were like, we'll accommodate you. So you go take all the statistics classes with mm. the psychology PhD mm. students, and we will let you get a statistics mm. concentration. I think a lot of that uh, kind of high quant learning is now moving into the school in a more structured way. So I love that because I really do think that mathematical underpinning helps you drive into systemic thinking um, would be the second. Uh, and then third, just to uh, do a ton of reading. You know, whether it's Michael Porter or you know, all of the books on strategy, yeah. you know, just constantly <clears throat> read and absorb new frameworks. Yep. That, before we leave the analytics uh, issue, could you offer up an illustration where with your better comprehension of the numbers, show me the numbers is one of the 
phrases that kicks around uh, that led you to do something maybe differently at Kodak, maybe a little bit um, orthogonally at, at Evite, or maybe even back at Microsoft. Your intuition said, we're going here. You looked at the numbers, though. We're going 45 degrees off of the here. What, do you have an example that comes to mind? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll take Evite as, as, a, as a clear example. So uh, Evite reached <clears throat> its historic <throat> peak of scale all the way back in 2008. That was before Facebook. That was before the mobile phone, which are two of the biggest fundamental changes to social behavior. We're talking middle ages. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. Uh, And at the time, for various reasons, the business lost sight of the customer in that 2008 to kind of 2014 window, which is when I joined. Uh, And so it started to to (laughs) deteriorate in terms of its scale. It wasn't it didn't become MySpace, but when I joined it, it was right at that cusp of potentially becoming MySpace. Revenue was in decline. Uh, it was less revenue. It was more the underlying user curve. The number of parties thrown had started in single-digit decline and then started to move into low double-digit decline. And that's you know, yeah. the reason I came on board. So the alarm bells are going off. Yeah. Uh, and so going back to your question, you know, one of the very first things that we did uh, was we used data to map out all of the longitudinal behaviors of all the different segments to understand mm-hmm. what is going to happen to this engine over time. Uh, you know, it seems it's fairly straightforward from a business perspective, but it's, it's still yeah. amazing <clears throat> how, few, how few businesses really understand kind of the longitudinal behaviors of their different customer segments and their customer inflows versus their, you know, effectively their churn rates. And so we built this model, which allowed us to really have the discussions at the board level uh, in high transparency around this is where we are. This is where we think the business is going to go over the next couple of years, and therefore this is what mm-hmm. we need, at least from a capital perspective or from a, yeah, what we're going to deliver from a strategy perspective. Let's uh, move into talking about Evite. We're going to take a breather in just a couple of minutes. But to get going on Evite, uh, again, a couple personal questions. Um, I don't know if you were reached by a headhunter or maybe through a personal network connection, but just reconstructing your thinking at that time, what led you to say yes, that you would come over to Evite at a moment when it, from what you've said, it was beginning to go maybe not off a cliff, but it was in decline? Yeah, there, uh, two very simple things. One, uh, I was super passionate about the space. So what I love about Evite is our, our mission in life, or what I call, we call it purpose, our purpose for existing. It's not to be the world's biggest invitation service and send out 3 billion invitations, which we do. We do those things. Uh, but really what drives us at our core is to bring people together face to face. So that for me is very compelling. I've got two young mm. children. I'm at the point in my life now where I think I have, it's actually this weird contradiction where I'm a super hardcore technologist. I'm, early, I'm an early adopter of many of the technologies that are there. Yet at the same time, I realize at a very meta level, these are very dangerous if they're not used correctly. Yep. And you see it yep. in teen behavior around devices, right? The, these, are, these are hyper addicting devices that have been tuned to be addicting not only at one level, but every app you bring in yep. right, has been honed. Uh, and so you start to see some of these cracks in the fabric of society around people losing their ability to come together face-to-face. Yep. So that's a, you know, prong number one, wow, I get to work on a technology, anti-technology business that can actually make the world a better place. So Victor, that, let's that just, was one big one. Let's just pause a second. I'm going to remind everybody that this is Leadership in Action, Sirius XM 132. I'm Mike Hussein. We're in active discussion, discussion with Victor Cho. And if you, by the way, if you want to jump into our discussion, we're at 844-942-7866. And, and Victor, now back to this moment when this seemed appealing for reasons you've just laid out. Uh, you also, though, are facing a turnaround moment. And you've mm-hmm. been through uh, one of those at Kodak Ophoto. 
uh, turnarounds can be daunting. So what led you to think that this was something you wanted to do, given the fact there was going to be heavy lifting ahead? Yeah, so the, the second piece of it, and this sounds, this might be a weird answer or a surprising answer. Uh, it was clear to me, because the business was not failing faster, that it was imminently repairable. Huh. And the reason I say that is, is when I looked huh. at the experience at the time, this was 2014, uh, the apps didn't work. <laughs> the, the mobile web experience didn't work. Aside and, from that, it was fine. <laughs> and this is a mobile-centric yeah. world, and right. we had a large-scale business that was still only declining in kind of low single digits. So it was very clear to me. I didn't even know exactly what was the underlying um, momentum that was driving the stickiness, but it was very clear. If, if a business can survive for six years in what should have been the hyper period of innovation and still be relevant, yeah. then it is very fixable. Uh, and uh, it turned out to be the case. I basically told the board when I joined, hey, I'll, I'll probably need, once I looked under the hood in a little bit more depth, uh, I probably need a couple of years to bring the experience back up to what it really should have been. Uh, and that should stabilize the business. And lo and behold, we did that. We, we focused hardcore on the customer experience for multiple years. We brought the business back into balance, and then in the last couple of years, we bought it back into growth. So, yeah, Evite's bigger now than when I joined, ah. which always makes me feel good as a excellent uh, as a CEO. Quick question: As you were being brought in, or you were bringing yourself in, but uh, you were working with the board on on the proposition that you would become chief executive. Uh, we use a phrase here about. Uh, it's kind of an ironic phrase of leading up. Most of the time, we've got people below us or around us. We have to get them aligned and energized. That's what leadership dictionary definition is all about. But on some days, we also have to work with the people above us who may not be as strategic or far-reaching in thought as we are at this moment. So with the board, as you explain to them, look, we've got a couple of years here to get things turned around. What, in your own experience, helped carry the case with your board members? You're gonna. You're, they probably wanted it turned around in six months, and you could see a couple years ahead. So, how did you lead up with the board? What were some of the tactics? Yeah, I don't think it was anything magical. It was literally, in some ways, going back to what we just talked about. It was a very rigorous articulation of the true state of the business, yep. the problem that we were facing, what my point of view was on how long it would take to fix it. Um, I don't think there's any magic other than just you laid it out rigorous trend. Yeah, well, run rigorous thinking and yeah, transparency. And this is, this is what we think. Uh, let's take the the first 100 days at Evite. So there you are, chief executive of a company. My guess is when you were an undergraduate here at University of Pennsylvania, you probably didn't anticipate one day you would be in the corner office, but there you are. And in the first 100 days, there's a whole argument that this is when you need to kind of take, get your hands wrapped around of what you're doing and taking charge and a bunch of more specific things. So describe a little bit the feel. Let's make it even the first day, but let's go for 100 days of being there, new chief executive of uh, one of the great uh, denizens or residents of the Internet world back in 2014. That's yeah, uh, one thing before I forget, I was... Uh, my team always finds this strange about me, but I actually knew at a very young age that I wanted to be the CEO of a software business. Really? Okay. <laughs> awesome. So it made my it made how, all my career and life decisions very easy because how, how young was young? Uh, Pre college. Okay. Uh, in high school, I was just I was totally into software, and I knew I was like, this is the space I need to. And I didn't even know what a CEO was back then. Yeah. But I knew I wanted to be a general, not a soldier. All so. right. So listeners, write that down. <laughs> don't don't be shy about what you want to become. Yeah. Very good. Okay, Victor. But first hundred days. So first hundred days as you enter a business uh, are always fascinating because on one hand you uh, 
you're the unknown quantity. Uh, for something like Evite, as we've talked about, right, it's, it, the, the team clearly knows something needs to happen differently. So there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of trepidation. You're you're an unknown entity. Um, you're thinking at a high level, wow, you know, people like your board, to the extent that they're actively involved, right? You know, they, they want quick decisions. They want to see immediate action. And I think one huge mistake that many executives make is they rush too fast to action. Um, businesses are complex beasts, and the reality is there's nothing that's going to happen in two, in the first hundred days that is going to fundamentally change the arc of a business that's been around for, you know, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary recently. So, my, you know, my first guidance to folks that are in that position is to be patient and really go learn. So I, I'd say my first 100 days were a mix of two things. By far and away, the most time was spent learning, learning what the historic arc, what happened to the business, what is the state of the business. And this is at every level, so it's not just meeting with yeah. my direct reports, literally meeting with pretty much everyone in the entire company to understand. And really, di it's almost like a surgeon going in, you're diagnosing, like, what is the true state of this organization? What's the true state of um, the business in terms of revenue, the profit lines, et cetera? Yeah. So, uh, Victor, let's make it very tangible. Yeah. Uh, I'm one of your uh, carryover senior managers. Uh, Victor, great to get acquainted. Uh, happy to have you here. Uh, so... Uh, what do you want to know about the business that I can offer up? Uh, I would actually start literally with an open-ended, which is like, tell, like, tell me what you do. What do you yeah. do? Yeah. What do you work on? Uh, and what do you think? Yeah. What's your perspective yeah. of the business today? So I curate the site. Uh, everything you see, if you go to that particular main URL, that, that that's me. I've, I've got an artistic edge. I've tried to make it creative, and I think it's working pretty well. Excellent. Uh, so how? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think if I can actually grill you with the questions. <laughs> go, go for it, yeah. Uh, I think, so first things I'd want to know is like, how do you, how do you define what is important in your day-to-day -day work? Yeah. Like what defines what you work on, what you don't work on? Tell me a little bit more about that process. Yeah. And how many, so just to move away from uh, yeah, yeah. me, your, 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 your new subordinate, how many, how many people would you have that conversation about? How much depth do you go? I guess that's the question here. Uh, I would spend... Pretty much an hour. I think I spent an hour, at least an hour, with every single person in the company. Whoa! How many? Yeah. Were, were, uh, at the time, it was it was under a hundred, so that was a manageable number. So right? It took you a couple of weeks, took, maybe took a, a couple, couple of months, weeks. even. Yeah. Uh, and then that created a lot of diagnostic follow up. Of okay, here's an area that's running just great. Like everyone here seems to be right aligned, etc. And wow, here's an area of like major pain. So that requires more more diagnostic. And by the way, just before we leave those uh, 100 one hour discussions, what did what do you think they wanted to know about you? I think at that point in time, when you have a new CEO coming in, they they just want the psychological comfort that, one, you're not insane. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you're doing. Yeah. yeah no, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. Is this a competent person? Yeah. <laughs> uh, are they sane? Can I trust them? Yeah. Do they have some kind of crazy agenda? I mean, I, I do think at that level, yeah. that's what they're looking for. Um, and just a, just a personal connection. Um, do you think it worried them that you were on your listening tour and not on your doing tour. Uh, was there an expectation? I'll, I have no idea what – this is not a leading question. Yeah. Was there an expectation, though, that you'd be there and so, okay, guys, here's my 50-day my plan, yeah. my 100 – anyway. Uh, uh, no, I, it's actually one of the great diagnostic tools when you yeah. go in and talk to a team. So uh, there's, there's a woman now who is actually my chief of staff at the company. Um, uh, she's been with the company since – ever since I joined. And at the time, she was a kind of a, ju a very junior product manager. Mm 
Uh, and I remember mm. those conversations because you can tell who is, one, really in it in terms of the organization, and also, two, like who's got kind of, kind of the raw diagnostic. Because those people actually don't just tell you what's happening. They tell you what's happening and what needs to get changed, and they express the frustration at why things, need, why things haven't changed. And so you'll have a lot of discussions where, yeah, people yep. – People like that will say, like, yes, and here, here's what, you know, this is the burning fire. Can, you know, I know you've got a lot of burning fires to put out, but this one's really important. So let's go a work on this one. Statement often made by turnaround people is that on arrival, they quickly appreciate uh, doing this learning tour mm-hmm. that a good number of the employees, sometimes more in the middle ranks, they got some great ideas, but they just haven't been brought up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people have been kind of resisting uh, moving in the direction that uh, the company ought to go. So question for you, what was the proportion of people as you became acquainted with the top or the 100 at the time that were ready to do things that hadn't yet been done in a good sense? And how many people, what fraction do you think was kind of in that more resistance category? Ooh, that's, uh, I think one way I could answer that, although it doesn't precisely answer the question, is uh, right now we're probably, you know, we'll be 130-ish employees now. Uh, and they're probably 75% new mm-hmm. uh, versus when I joined. So over the last four years, we've had effectively a complete yep. remake yep. of the business. Now, that's been a combination of changing because of mindset, but also changing because of capability. So it's, you, it's kind of a duality. I don't know that I yeah. could actually tease out kind of one versus the other. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's stay on that in, in a somewhat different way of thinking about it. As you bring in new people, you, you've got your feet on the ground. Maybe it's three months later. Mm-hmm. You begin now to build up and out uh, with with your vision, your strategy now more clearly defined. Uh, what kind of a what would the what would the job what would the criteria be at the forefront of your thinking as you're interviewing several candidates for picking one over another? Um, for a, kind of for a different for a particular role or for yeah, a yeah pick the role it could be a yeah. chief marketing person or a CFO or whatever. So I think for that I would answer that way uh, a crazy framework person maybe to the chagrin of my employees. <laughs> okay. I've actually just FYI I've yeah. put all those frameworks out online for public consumption at uh, victorcho.com. Uh, but I have a, a very explicit framework for how I think about talent. Yeah, uh, which is a little bit unique, and and from, this is on the web. It is, yeah, yeah. It's out there and kind of I love in a public form. Give us the URL again. Oh, uh, it's just Victor Cho, V I C T O R C H O dot com. Check it out, everybody. Uh, but the the answer to the question is everyone in the company, and this actually uh, is how we run our talent engine. Uh, how we've run it for the last four years has three core buckets that they're assessed on, and two two <laughs> will be not surprising for you. So, the first one is capabilities. So does the person have the capabilities in the role to do the job? Uh, and that actually sub-splinters out into a bunch of different things. It's, it's of course, the content knowledge. So we'll pick on a developer. You know, it's the content knowledge yeah. that you know how to code, uh, but it's also things like, are you a strategic thinker? Can you approach uh, your problem space strategically? So yeah. you know, that's, that's the obvious one. Do you have the raw skills? The second one's also fairly obvious, which is do you put, we call it real output, but do you put real points on the board that are measurable and that you can point to? Uh, and most companies get will promote and pick people based on those two things. It's like, wow, yeah, I've got a really kick-ass developer, and they're coding like a machine, and their output is great. Uh, what's unique about my philosophy and kind of the company culture that we're building is we have a third, which is called energy accretive. Are you hmm. energy accretive to the organization? Uh, and that the way I would describe that at the highest level is, does your addition into the team 
increase the net output of the team beyond your individual contribution. So yes, you could add a really good developer in, and, and let's say you could quantify development output with some number and say like, yes, you know, you're adding 100. We expect you to actually add more than 100 into the organization, right? We expect your introduction to lift other <laughs> folks. And the opposite of that uh, is called energy dilutive. And you kind of know it when, you know, when you yeah. are working with these people. <laughs> the, way I, the way I always describe it is, Imagine you're convening a cross-functional team, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, Joe's going to come, be part of the team." And there's like a oh, Joe, yeah. he's like so smart, and he gets so much done, but he's just going to like suck the life out of this project. Uh, so it's it's you know, you're missing the mindset, you're missing the change, you know, the drive to change, you're missing the team collaboration yep. component. So that's that's the third. Uh, Victor, hold that thought. I'm going to come back to it. I just want to remind everybody that you're listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. You're on Channel 132 at Sirius XM. Uh, I'm Mike Yuseem, the host uh, this evening, and I'm with Victor Cho, a graduate of our school here who is now CEO of Evite. Uh, Victor, coming back to the point we just uh, you just referenced, uh, a candidate walks into your office, and this third criterion of is a person going to add or take away mm-hmm. above and beyond their own particular function uh, you kind of know it when you see it. My guess is you've maybe got a question or two that also can bring that out. So what would be a question that might probe that very that very issue? Are you an energy adder or an energy subtractor? Yeah, it's, it's actually less a question you can ask the individual. It comes up, and this is why the, these conversations are so important. It comes yeah. up in what I call the 360 process as you talk. Yeah, across the organization at who are the strong players, like wh- where does friction get created? What will happen is you'll start to see this pattern of, wow, here's an individual that like 10 people have mentioned is a is a pain point. Or, yeah. And so it actually doesn't come, it's, it's not the, you know, sometimes people will confuse it with like a, a, a charisma and a positivity. It's actually yeah. not that. It's yeah. actually their, their, their broader imprint on the organization. And Victor, I hear you saying this, uh, you have your own um, insights into how somebody behaves or acts or makes uh, decisions around in a room, but maybe above all, on appraising that particular criterion, Going to people with whom they've been working is yes. probably no better source. Yeah, no, no, no. That that's the yeah, okay. that's the best one. Okay, Victor. Uh, to ensure that we really uh, get into some of the uh, terrain that you currently occupy, mm-hmm. so that listeners can appreciate for themselves leadership in action. Let me ask a, a kind of an oddball question here. As you became chief executive. I think for the first time, or were you a CEO at Ophoto? I was, yes. Okay, so, so this is my second second, CEO role. second round. But let's make it the second round here. What uh, on two sides of the equation here? What turned out not to be true once you got there, and what turned out to be surprisingly true you didn't see before you arrived there? Ooh, it turned out to be not true. Kind of an expectation that I had going yeah, in, and it just uh, it just wasn't true. Here's what yeah. some, if people sometimes say this just to say the obvious. I thought I, I I thought I could make things happen. I could tell people what to do, and it turns out I couldn't tell people what to do. But anyway, back <laughs> to you. Back to you. Uh, what turned out not to be true, uh, I think it was it was a little bit harder than I thought to get the business back into growth. Yeah. Uh, and a little bit meaning I thought I, we could do it, find the growth vector within about two years, and it took about three years. Growth is double digit. Uh uh, revenue growth, yeah, we have driven in double digit, and user growth getting close to that. So, so when you told the board we're going to get growth back, you meant something above nine percent. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Actually, it's, you know, it's funny you say that. Like our my explicit target is to bring yeah revenue and user growth back into double digit growth. Yeah, yeah, great. yeah. super. So yeah, that took a tiny bit longer. Um, 
that took a tiny bit longer than I thought. So that was a, I don't want to say it was a surprise because that's also something where you don't have great telemetry. That was more just a, a missed ex, or a missed hope, yeah. maybe for lack of a better term. Um, so that would be one. Um, and then something that exceeded expectation. Or yeah. Something that was, uh, I'd say I've actually been incredibly impressed with the talent I've been able to get in Los Angeles. So I still live in the Bay Area, which is, of course, the heart of technology. And that was a, that was a big question, which is, hey, will my yeah. expectations for talent be met down in L.A., which you know, historically has not been known as a, as a tech hub? But it is absolutely becoming – there's a whole area called Silicon Beach, and you have a lot of tech companies totally, spawning in that area. Totally. So I've been incredibly happy with the – uh, level and caliber of talent we've been able to find. You know, a topic for another discussion is the fact that Silicon Valley now is being, in a sense, replicated or reproduced or it's just growing in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, in uh, San Antonio, in New York City now, mm-hmm. uh, Arlington, Virginia. So um, and then it, we'll, we'll come back to that in some other setting. Uh, let's stay, though, on the U as a now new chief executive. Uh, a couple years in, now second round as, as CEO, as we've just mentioned, uh, you're getting, let's say, your sea legs. You're, you're really kind of getting the rhythm and the feel. Mm-hmm. And let's make it two or three years in. You've been there since 2014, mm-hmm. so we can do the math. You're probably in your fifth year now. What, what did you come to appreciate by the third year that you didn't see when you first arrived there? Something that kind of emerged in your mind, ah, yes, I've got to focus on X. Uh, one thing that's been a, a pleasant surprise, I'm not sure if this will precisely answer the question, but the the power of our ecosystem, of the Evite ecosystem, uh, has been surprising on some on some dimensions in yeah. a good way. So uh, on, I'll just give you the, the best tangible example of that is one of the first things we did when I joined, I want to say we maybe did, actually it was about two years in, I want to say, uh, we, we embedded... Um, the ability for any nonprofit to raise money through Evite for free. Uh, and that came oh. out of a, a customer <laughs> insight, which is we had a lot of people throwing parties and events for fundraising, but they were hacking in the workflow. So they would, <laughs> you know, they would say, hey, we're raising money for something. You know, please PayPal the money here. So we, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at and mining <laughs> our customer data to understand use cases. And so it was, it was like, wow, that's kind of painful. So we, we found an awesome partner, this company called Pledgeling in L.A., and we have now integrated with you know hundreds of thousands of nonprofits. So literally, you can as you as you start an Evite, like right on the bottom yeah. right, it's like, hey, would you like to use this to help raise money for a nonprofit? And you can literally pick it and add it. Uh, and that we, we've done very little marketing promotion of that. It's really just adding it into the experience yeah. and the flow. And it, it's a great example going back to our previous comment conversation around thinking of your system more as an ecosystem that connects. Right, functions with consumers. Right? Yep. It's not something that we yep. built. It was actually via a part, third party. Uh, we just passed the 10 million mark in terms of donations raised through Fantastic. that, which is you know, running in some ways faster than I would have expected. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's been and, great. And it's got a whole payment system kind of in the infrastructure there. So I click here to make a $100 donation and come to the fundraiser. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. So yeah, if you were to throw yeah. a birth, yeah, our, our, one of our pitches is, hey, instead of throwing these kids' birthday parties where your kids get 30 presents, Instead, say, don't bring any presents. Hey, let's raise money for a cause. Yep. And so, yeah, you as yep. a guest would receive the invitation. It would say, you know, Victor's raising money. Or, you know, for this birthday, we don't want gifts. Please click here to donate. You would exactly, you would do all that payment right right, literally within the invitation yep. itself. You don't have to go anywhere else. So you're kind of bottoms up, learning from customers, customer analytics, uh, a huge driver there. Mm-hmm. Victor, everybody wants scale, innovation, and growth. It's almost a mantra. Uh, we, we teach it here. We think about it. We worry about it. 
And in your own experience, let's say a couple years in, uh, thinking about the underlying drivers of your own success in creating more growth, more innovation, Mm -hmm. more everything, what does it come down to in terms of the fundamentals of driving growth and scaling the enterprise? Yeah, so I, um, I, if Microsoft gave me my training on the power of ecosystem, uh, I did four years at Intuit, which is just world-renowned for its customer centricity. Yeah. And, uh, at, at Intuit, we did a bunch of work with Fred Reichheld, who's the founder of Net Promoter. And so my, my short answer on driving yeah. growth ultimately is you have to deliver a, an amazing customer experience. And that's the, that's the simple and short answer, which is have you actually – are you delivering value in a way that is truly world-class in terms of the experience? Here's a personal question yeah. before we leave that. Uh, in our coursework here, I say that. Uh, but I've also heard you say with a good undergraduate education, some experience in Microsoft, it was a later experience that Intuit in particular that really took that that concept and made it personal for you. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Up until coming into Intuit, I actually had a – my toolkit was ecosystem. It yep. was how do I you know how do I build a large scale ecosystem and get these strategic leverage points and customer the customer experience was maybe a second or third thing on the list coming out of Intuit uh, it's nothing else compares yeah so yeah we literally that is the engine that drives everything and that's yep. the engine that kicked us back into robust health and growth yep. um, and by the way just to come back to my phrase thinking strategically I've also heard this. Part of thinking strategically in in the constellation as you put it together is to understand what customers want and also what they want next year that's going to be different from last year. Victor, let me just take a minute to remind everybody that you are listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm in the studio again with Victor Cho, a Wharton graduate who is now CEO of Evite. Uh, Victor, we're beginning to go short on time. A couple more final personal questions for you. Uh, I was interested in the fact that early on you decided you wanted to run something in the um, in the Internet or maybe didn't even use the term then, but in somewhere in the computer, maybe software space yeah. one day. With the benefit of hindsight of looking back on your own itinerary, undergraduate degree in computer science and business, time at Microsoft, time at Intuit, Ophoto, Kodak, uh, so on, and now at Evite, what advice would you have for somebody who, like you, at an early age, decided they really want to make they want to make a significant place for themselves and have significant impact in the world of uh, software, hardware, or well beyond? Yeah, so one piece of guidance I can give people, uh, and I especially the the generation I see coming through now, mm-hmm. they are as a, as a stereotypical statement, but. You know, stereotypes are always grounded in some truth. Yep, yep. <laughs> they are overly concerned about compensation and title and responsibility. Huh. I've actually never cared about any of those things. So even though, even though I knew <laughs> I, I knew I wanted someday to run a large software business, and I always thought of that in terms of stages of growth and learning. It was what did I what did I learn What do I understand about how businesses operate? What do I not understand? How do I go acquire that knowledge? That's all I cared about, and so I had looked at. Every job opportunity I've had has been through that filter. It hasn't been what's the title or what's the comp. It's am I building my toolkit so that I can be a better executive, and am I rounding out the gaps in knowledge that I have to be efficient, to be effective. Victor, I've got an odd parallel to offer up. Yeah. We one time had uh, at that time the just 
stepped down, chief executive of IBM here on campus, a guy named Lou Gerstner, a couple oh, yeah. of CEOs ago. And a student in a room not too far from where we sit today said, uh, Mr. Gerstner, uh, you became chief executive of IBM. Uh, how did you plot out your career to become so? And he kind of looked and said, look, uh, I, I just never thought of it that way. What I always thought about, though, was doing the next job as good as I could possibly do. I hear you saying the same thing. Yeah, I'd say uh, I, would, I would echo that. Build the skills that you don't have. Yeah. Uh, and also operate at the next level. So in any given role, uh, and I got great training from a, a manager at Microsoft on this. Uh, in any given role, you're, of course, you're given the work and the project or the task, and people tend to just jump onto that and just go do it, and they're happy because they're like, well, you told me X, and I delivered X. And for some reason, mm -hmm. I've always been wired to say, well, how would I think about this if I were my boss? Would I approach it in the same way? And, and like yeah. eight out of ten times, the way you would solve a problem by thinking of it within this smaller space is not the same way you think about it totally. in the bigger space. And that'll lead you to say things. You know, I, I know there have been many conversations I've had with managers where they've come to me and said, well, I want you to do ABC. And instead of saying, yes, I'm going to go do ABC, you know, how high, I come back and say, I don't think I should do ABC because <laughs> yeah. if I were you, I'd have me do D, E, and F given what I know about the business. And maybe I'm missing some context, but let's have that conversation. Yeah. And I think constantly pushing yourself to think at the next level and to think more uh, what I call wing-to-wing across the organization, whatever organization you're in. It's powerful. All right, Victor, we got about two minutes, so a, a, a kind of a, a final question, which we had more time on it, is this. Uh, there's a phrase, I love it, what got you here won't get you there. What the market is this year is going to be very different from what it'll be a couple years out. So in anticipating a unknowable future in detail, what are some of the steps you take now to ensure that the way you manage, the way you lead, what your company does, how you provide the customer experience, that you're going to be able to do that um, well a couple years ahead, knowing it's mm -hmm. going to be different, whatever is ahead. Over to you. Yeah. So I one thing I do is I, so two thoughts. One is I actually think much of the toolkit of being an effective executive is a fairly enduring toolkit. Yeah. Right. The toolkit to really understand and embrace the concept of customer centricity. Once Once you've mastered mm -hmm. that and those processes, those will map I mean, maybe the tools will change, but the, the core construct is the same, right? The, the ability to hmm. drive line of sight in your organization and have rigorous prioritization that matches strategy, right? These things are conceptual things that don't really change. Um, yeah. There are things, I think, from a content perspective, though, that are worth tracking. And so one thing I do is, is try to look ahead over the next five, 10 years and say, where, again, where am I missing knowledge? Yep. Uh, my big uh, personal learning point right now is all around machine learning. Um, and AI, and what and the impact of that can be. They're, they're coming. Yeah. Both so, of them. Well, those are all my books that I'm reading. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, with uh, just a couple seconds to go, uh, final piece of advice, just we've got about 30 seconds here, final piece of advice for somebody that's coming into your world on how to manage and lead their way forward. Just be, trans be transparent and open, I think is probably one of my biggest ones. Um, far too often people try to hoard and control information, and I think you're best served by be being the best you can be and being as transparent as possible. That's good news, bad news. It'll always come, it'll bite you in the, it'll bite you in the butt later yeah, totally. <laughs> if you're trying to hide things. All right, Victor, fantastic. I really appreciate you joining us here in the studio for this show. Uh, I think most of our listeners know about Evite. Many have been there, including myself, uh, to use the service. If they want to find out more about you and Evite, what would be your place for them to take a look? 
Uh, for Evite, simply go to www.evite.com, uh, download our, our five-star mobile app, and throw some parties okay. and, and have some fun. Uh, have uh, fun. For myself personally, I have a website at uh, www.victorcho.com. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.